So welcome. We are the Baltimore Bio Crew, and we are a high school item team that's currently working at the Baltimore Underground Science Space to create Joy Biotic. We are developing a psychobiotic in the form of flavored water drops. We recognize that people of all ages may suffer from mental health issues. In the context of the pandemic, this is even more relevant. To help with mental health illnesses such as depression and anxiety, we are aiming to increase serotonin production through the production of 5-HTV, um, GABA and acetylcholine by lactobacillus and E. coli nisole. Um, in our podcast, we are interviewing professionals in the mental health field um, to educate others about mental health, psychobiotics, and the relationship between the gut biome and mental health. This is the third, I mean, this is the um, fifth podcast in our series, so please listen and enjoy. Um, so I am a member of the Human Practices sub-team, which is responsible for community outreach, education, and implementing input from professionals into our research. This year, we're developing a podcast, social media campaign, high school course, and educational comment. We thank you for your support for listening to our podcast and would greatly appreciate it if you checked out our other work as well, which will be posted on the Baltimore BioCruise iGym Wiki page. <coughs> So I am the interviewer today, and my name is Kevin Kratz, and this is my second year on the iGEM team. And today we're here with our guest, Dr. Glenn, <clears throat> Dr. Glenn Cheisman of Johns Hopkins University. He is extremely accomplished in many fields in psychiatry, medicine, and the gut microbiome. We will be discussing his research in the field and the significance of the balance between the gut microbiome and the production of neurotransmitter <clears throat> neurotransmitters for our mental health, which is extremely relevant to our own project. Before our interview begins, we would like to inform everyone that his appearance on our podcast does not indicate that he is promoting our project and is purely here to share his ex expertise with us. With this in mind, we'll now allow him to introduce himself. Hi, everybody. My name is Glenn Treisman. I'm a professor at Johns Hopkins, where I've been for the last 30-some years taking care of patients with a variety of conditions. But for the interest of this interview, one of the things I co-direct is the Amos Center called the Amos Food Mind Body Center. And it's interested in the gut brain connection or the gut mind connection. And uh, we're interested in how, uh, how the GI tract from the microbiome through the nervous system all the way to the brain uh, cause and, um, and can relieve a variety of disease states, including both those seen in the gut and those seen in the brain. Thank you so much for this for your introduction. So we've prepared some questions for you today and we would really appreciate it if you shared your knowledge and opinions with us. Sure. Thank you. Um, so our first question, can you please tell us what is the microbiome and what is its importance to mental health and to human health? And why do you focus a part of your research and, and medicinal, medicinal practice focused on the microbiome? Yeah, great question. So. Um, in your, in your gut live bacteria, and um, those bacteria help you digest your food. They hitched a free ride on organisms starting um, hundreds of millions of years ago, and um, probably billions of years ago, but they learned that if they cooperated with, uh, with organisms uh, by helping them digest their food, they got free food. So you hunt and fish and raise grains and farm and create food sources for yourself. And the bacteria get a free ride from that. But while they're digesting your food, they help you in a variety of ways. 
And um, so you're only about probably, well, it, people argue, but you're less than half you and more than half microbiota by counts. The cells are much smaller, so they don't, they don't take up nearly as much space. But by numbers, you're less you and more them. And uh, your gut microbiome, um, it thinks that it bred you to feed it. It thinks, it thinks of you in the same way you think of it as a passenger. And, um, and it, doesn't, it doesn't, not that it thinks in the way we think, but that's the way it experiences us. So you think that you're carrying on your microbiome to help you digest your food and your microbiome thinks you're, it's bred you to go around and get it food. So your microbiome um, consists of about 12,000 different kinds of bacteria. Um, when, we, when I was a medical student, we only knew of a very small number of those bacteria. And a huge breakthrough was the ability to sequence RNA and look at RNA signatures for bacteria. And we found there were huge numbers of different types of bacteria in your gut. Um, and those bacteria all kind of live in different little niches and do different kinds of things. So they compete with each other. And as you're developing, your bacteria help your immune system decide what it's going to tolerate and what it's not going to tolerate. So a great deal of autoimmune disease and a great deal of other kinds of GI disorders have a lot to do with what's living in your gut. Um, so one of the things we noticed very early on was that, um, was that um, if you had certain kinds of microbes in your gut, you were more likely to have certain kinds of physiological issues. For instance, your gut has uh, bacteroides and formicides are two types of bacteria, and they tend to dominate your gut. If you're a bacteroides dominant person, you're more likely to be thin. If you're a formicides dominant person, you're more likely to be fat. If you lose weight, you t tend to see the dominance change. So if you're fat and you have a formicides dominated gut, um, when you get thinner, you're more likely to have a bacteroides dominant gut. Now, you'll notice I keep saying more likely to, because it's not absolute. Um, and there are, there are exceptions to this. And so it's not as simple as we'd like it to be. You can't just take a fat person and give them bacteroides and make them thin, although that would be very nice. Um, so we're, we're studying things like that. And one of the things that, um, that we study are dysmotility syndromes where your gut doesn't move food properly. And this turns out to be a very, very complicated issue. But there are people who develop uh, intractable constipation or intractable diarrhea or have alternating diarrhea and constipation. And often those occur after a, bacteria, after a uh, viral gastroenteritis. So people will go on a trip, get diarrhea, traveler's diarrhea it's called, and they'll come back and they'll be fine for a while. And then they'll develop a pattern of alternating diarrhea and constipation and intense gut pain. And that condition is referred to in medicine as irritable bowel syndrome. And uh, until a few years ago, it was sort of thought to be psychiatric and psychological. But it turns out probably is not in any way psychiatric or psychological, although it impinges on psychiatric conditions. So we, um, we study the transmitters your gut makes how your gut functions and how it moves food along, um, what goes wrong with it, and the associated psychiatric phenomena that you see. 
So um, that's, that's kind of an overview of why I study it, what we're interested in. Um, we have lots of patients who have very severe um, dysfunction because their gut's not working right and their brain's not working right. And they often go together and we want to get those people better. Thank you so much. That's like really interesting how um, a person's microbiome can change just based off of like what, how much they weigh or even like having a disease like that they weren't born with. So thank you for telling everyone that. Um, so our next question is, can you tell us about some of the impacts that our microbiome has on our lives as many people assume that it, its only role is like aiding in digestion? Sure. So um, I'm going to give you some examples of things that we, that we know and then talk a little bit about things that might be. So um, one of the things your bacteria do is set the set point on your immune system for how active it is. So we found out that in developing countries, people have more worms in their gut and we tend not to have worms in our gut at all. So in this country, there's relatively few uh, worms living in people's guts. The worms in order to survive in your gut suppress your immune system. So in developing settings, developing setting countries, um, in that setting, people have less autoimmune disease like Crohn's and less allergies, less asthma, um, probably because those worms suppress their immune system some, but they're less responsive to, um, to immunizations. And they're more likely to get certain infectious diseases because their immune systems are somewhat suppressed by the worms. So if you are a worm living in someone's gut and you lay eggs, the chances of someone getting one of those legs are tiny. Those eggs are floating around the water, but it's very small likelihood of someone eating one. So those worms have to be very effective if they get into your gut in suppressing your immune system so they can survive. So they're very good at suppressing the immune system, but they don't want to suppress your immune system so much that you get an infection with something else and die. So they've tuned themselves over millions of years living with organisms so that they do just the right amount of immunosuppression for you to mostly survive. Um, but um, if you get rid of those worms, as we have in, in, um, in uh, high hygiene settings where water is processed carefully, um, the immune system isn't suppressed and you're more likely to develop an autoimmune disease. So there are studies looking at right now at Crohn's disease and trying to treat it with worms. Um, it's not my first choice, uh, but um, it's a, it's, Crohn's disease can be very refractory. The problem is if we give you those worms, we're immunosuppressing you. And although we get rid of your Crohn's disease, you're less likely to respond to certain vaccinations because your immune system isn't as, isn't as responsive. So it's a trade-off that, that we've made over millions of years to try to find a way we can tolerate the organisms that live in us and know which ones to tolerate, but still defend ourselves against organisms that don't belong. And we tend to think of our first line of defense as being our immune system, but really the first line of defense is your gut microbes. So when you're born, you get infected by microbes from your mother. And um, over time, the microbes in your gut match your genetics. So they're happy there. And you get a diverse microbiome with lots of different kinds of bacteria. And it's its own ecosystem. So some of the bacteria like to eat mucus and some of the other bacteria 
try to suppress those cells that make mucus so those bacteria won't eat the mucus so that they can have more space for themselves. And so they create this whole ecosystem in your gut that's unique to you. And um, your, what we found is that people's microbiomes aren't the same. And in some places in the world, the microbiome contains bacteria that you don't find in other parts of the world. So for instance, um, in places where people eat sorghum, kids often have bacteria that can break down sorghum, not seen in places where there isn't a lot of sorghum. In Japan, you see bacteria that can break down seaweed and make it a, make it a food substance. Well, most people don't have those kind of bacteria. So these microbes are designed partly in response to what you eat, but they also ask you to eat certain things. So your microbes can make you have give stomach ache and make you want to eat. So your microbes are communicating with you a variety of ways and you're communicating with them. So you ask the question about how they can infect, how they affect you. One of the ways is they affect your immune system. And so um, we think there are several disease states that come from a, an imbalance or um, dysregulation of the relationship between the immune system and the bacteria living in your gut. So there's, uh, there's, a, there's a set of junctions between the cells that line your gut so that bacteria can't get in. And there are situations where those open up and bacteria invade into the wall of your gut. And that will, that will cause uh, big immune dysregulation problems. But probably happens in time, at times because there's immune dysregulation to start with. And so the arrow goes both ways. Screw up the gut, the bacteria would get hurt change the bacteria and your gut can get hurt. So um, I'll give you some examples of some really interesting things that people have found. One of the things people have found is that um, about a third of people in the world, less in, less in the United States, but about a third of people are infected with an organism called toxoplasmosis. It's not a bacteria, it's a microbe. It's a, it's a, it's a, a eukaryotic microbe, but toxo is, generally speaking, seen as a silent infection. Most people doesn't bother them. They get the infection, it gets, the little things go to your brain, they get walled off in your brain and they never bother you. If you get immunosuppressed and you get toxo and don't have it, you have trouble fighting it. And so during the time when I started working in the AIDS clinic, a lot of people came in with toxoplasmosis of their brain, it can be a fatal disease. Um, and mothers who get infected with toxoplasmosis during pregnancy can have, can have catastrophic uh, uh, problems for the baby. So we try not to get mothers infected. But what we've learned is that these organisms that we've assumed to be silent actually affect behavior. So people who have toxo are more likely to have um, certain kinds of accidents. They're more likely to have suicidal feelings. They're more likely to uh, um, act on their feelings. Um, when you measure personality traits, people who are infected aggregately have more of a, a trait called neuroticism or instability, where their emotions are changed more in response to stimuli. And in interesting studies, what you can show is that men who have toxo are not quite as smart as men who don't. Women who have toxo are a little smarter than women who don't. Women who look at pictures of men we'll find the men who have toxo on aggregate a little more attractive than the men who don't have toxo. And the men who have toxo are a little taller and have a little higher testosterone levels than women. So these bugs, which we think of as silent, are affecting you in ways that you are unaware of. Now, 
they don't directly affect you. They don't make you think about, for instance, going for a drive, but it's an aggregate finding that the people with Toxo are slightly different than the people without Toxo. Now, people haven't researched this well enough, but it is also possible that certain kinds of people are more likely to get Toxo. And that's why the association is there. It's not that the Toxo is changing those people. It's those kinds of people are more likely to get Toxo. We don't think that's the case, but that's a possibility from those research findings. So that gives you a sense of how complicated these things are. So um, we find that, um, that bacteria can um, be associated with colicky babies. Um, and so uh, the baby that's colicky will cry more and will get fed more. And um, certain bacteria seem to be able to make you uh, cry more, make you uncomfortable. So it helps the bacteria, but it also helps you in a situation where there's twins, the colicky twin will get more food than the non-colicky twin to shut it up. And uh, mothers very seldom just kill their babies. They tend to raise them. So, um, but they, they really don't like it when they're crying all the time. So these bacteria have moved into your gut and created a niche and they make huge amounts of neurotransmitters. They make serotonin, they make other neurotransmitters. One of the ways gut, these bacteria affect you is by releasing those, some of the things they make into your blood. So we can show that certain things that bacteria make have effects on your immune system and your brain through transmission by your blood. Other ways that they affect you though, come through your vagus nerve. So there's a nerve that goes from your brain to your gut. It's a big trunk called the vagus nerve. And that nerve transmits information both upwards and downwards through your gut. And the, the uh, bacteria seem to be able to affect that nerve in some people in certain ways that are more likely to cause dysfunction. So we're studying those things. We're studying that certain bacteria are associated with better moods and worse moods in rats. Um, they get, when they get anxious and nervous, certain bacteria associated with that, if you transplant other bacteria into their guts, they become less nervous and less anxious. Um, and you can show things like that with people. Um, I'll give you another example <clears throat> of what your microbiome does. So we do gastric bypasses on people who are dangerously overweight. Um, and those gastric bypasses make you much less effective at absorbing food. However, one of the things that was discovered was that if you have a gastric bypass, your diabetes gets better much faster than before, long before your weight goes down. And so um, people started studying that and they did little gastric bypasses on rats and mice. And if you take a fat rat and you do a gastric bypass, his weight will go down. And if you then, after his weight goes down, take the gut microbe from that rat and transmit it into another rat that hasn't been operated on, its weight will go down. So it is possible the weight loss that's associated with the gastric bypass isn't because of calorie deprivation, but that it, it's because of uh, changing the microbiome and your microbiome changes considerably after a gastric bypass. So those are the kinds of things that your gut bacteria do to you and you do to your gut bacteria. If you eat certain foods, you'll select for certain bacteria. Um, other bacteria will try to make you uncomfortable, so you'll eat other foods. It is possible that some food cravings come from the kinds of uh, bacteria that you have. I think you're frozen, Evan.
You're not moving. Oh, there you are. Oh, I'm sorry. Can, can you hear me again? I can. You froze for a second. Oh, yes. I'm sorry. My internet connection isn't extremely stable, but I heard everything that you were saying. And Good. thank you so much. Yeah. Um, so just to clarify, um, so the back, the microbiome doesn't have, I mean, bacteria in our microbiome don't have a direct like control over our brain, but like they can more so initiate like different symptoms that would control how we feel like suicidal or uncomfortable. Yep. Oh, okay, I see. Thank you. You're welcome. <laughs> okay, so for our next question as a kind of follow-up to that, so you mentioned like um, gastro by gastric bypass surgery, like being able to change the um, composition of our of our gut. Is there are there any other ways to like predict or control the behavior of bacteria in the microbiome? Or th that's the that's a area of a very active study. So mm -hmm. all around the world, people are trying to do something that has become called uh, uh, phagopharmacology. Phag means to eat. P H A G. So phagopharmacology is trying to um, change people or, or treat disorders by changing what people eat. And so um, there are lots of people who are working on probiotics out there. <clears throat> probiotics are uh, bacteria that you give to people to try to help change their gut. And um, I'll give you two examples of uh, probiotics, actually three. One example is this. If you get a bug called Clostridium difficile, C. diff, you get horrible diarrhea. Now, when that was discovered, it was discovered because it was initially called antibiotic-associated bacteria. Take an antibiotic, antibiotic-associated diarrhea. Take an antibiotic, and after a period of time, you get this horrendous diarrhea, and you get an inflammation of your colon called pseudomembranous colitis, and you can die. It's fatal in quite a number of people, C. diff diarrhea. We could treat it by giving other antibiotics, but, um, but you can't always eradicate it. And some people die of it because the antibiotics won't get rid of them. Now, what's interesting is it happens right after an antibiotic. So what it's done is disrupted the normal flora of your gut, the normal ecosystem. And it seems like in that setting, the bacteria Clostridium uh, that makes this toxin, C. diff toxin, can grow in your gut. And once it's there, it's very hard for your body to get rid of it. However, if you take microbiome from another person and transplant it into your gut, most of the time you can get rid of C. diff. This is referred to as a stool transplant. And, um, and it, although it sounds icky, if you're dying of C. diff, it's a wonderful thing. So we've just discovered that fairly recently. That's a new development. Although uh, Dr. John Bartlett at Hopkins was this, was studying that 30 years ago when he just he was the, one of the discoverers of C. diff and he was studying stool transplants 30 years ago but because uh you transplant live bacteria when you do that um the IRB told him he couldn't do it anymore but now it's come back because uh, C. diff is a big problem now in hospitals so <clears throat> that's an example of a situation in which um we are giving you a bacteria to treat a specific illness um, but it's not a specific bacteria. Now, another thing that we're doing is there is a company that has developed a, uh, a set of bacteria um, that's called Pendulum. And uh, Pendulum has uh, three different bacteria in it, um, one probiotic. 
And one of the bacteria is Clostridium uh, butyricum. And butyricum comes from the word butyric acid, which is uh, something that that bacterium makes. And it's the, one of the active ingredients in butter, short chain fatty acid. So butyric acid is a short chain fatty acid. And, and it seems like when you give people this set of microbiomes, they lose a little bit of weight and their diabetes improves. And we're looking now uh, to see if it also improves mood because there's some evidence that uh, butyric acid might affect mood. So we're trying to see if uh, the pendulum helps people with their mood. Um, so that's an example of a bacteria that's fairly specific. Um, several of the uh, lactobacillus bugs um, have been shown to affect mood in animals and maybe in people. And so people are trying those microbiomes, micro, those, those microbiota out in the form of probiotics to help people. Turns out that if you eat yogurt a lot, you're much less likely if you have certain genes to develop colon cancer. So young early onset colon cancer is uh, less likely to occur in people who eat lots of yogurt. And that yogurt seems to change the microbiome some. So we don't know all the connections, but there's a woman named uh, Cynthia Sears at Johns Hopkins who discovered that and who's published it and who's researching it, uh, trying to understand what the connection is between, uh, between cancer and this bug. Thank you so much for your answers. Yeah, those are like really, those are very helpful examples. Um, so for our next question, we would like to know how sensitive is the microbiome to alterations, including changes in bacteria or changes in the environment um, in general? And is there anything in particular we should keep in mind when introducing psychobiotic bacteria to an existing microbiome? Yeah, so um, it's a very hard thing to say. So you're, you're, the food you eat and the water you drink and all the other things you contact day to day have lots of bacteria on them. And so you're constantly subjected to uh, bacteria coming in, but they're coming in in modest doses um, and they're a diverse set of bacteria. Um, however, if you get food poisoning, you can show that a subset of people, once they've had food poisoning, will have alterations in their gut microbiomes. And food poisoning often causes the development of irritable bowel syndrome, IBS, which is a big problem for people. Um, there's a very famous study, and I can't quote the study, but there was a small community where the water got contaminated by animal feces after a flood, and a huge number of people in that town developed irritable bowel syndrome as a result of the gastroenteritis they got, and that's persisted for years and years. They, it's almost a permanent change for them and uh, can be quite debilitating. So <clears throat> exposure to some bacteria can be quite dangerous. We don't know all the bacteria that are dangerous and some bacteria are more dangerous to certain people than others, depending on their genetics and their transit rate and the amount of acid they secrete and all kinds of other things. So <clears throat> we don't know yet which bacteria are good for people, which bacteria are bad for people. Um, and in high doses, it's possible that we're gonna do some harm. And once your bacterial microbiome has been changed, it's not clear how to get it back to where it was. So everybody asks me when I give a lecture, which probiotic should I take? And I say, if you're a well person, don't take any probiotics. 
you're getting plenty of probiotics from the food you eat. And if you really want to take some probiotics, eat yogurt. It has lots of black bacteria. But <clears throat> we don't know yet which bacteria might be good for one person, but bad for another person. And we know antibiotics, the things we take constantly for colds and flu, which is totally inappropriate use of antibiotics, but people do it all the time. Those antibiotics simplify your gut microbiome and actually make you more likely. Uh, oh, the meeting has been upgraded by the host and now includes unlimited minutes. Oh, I didn't. How did that happen? Probably my, my probably mine did it. Oh, thank you. <laughs> my, my Zoom's unlimited. Um, so the bacteria in your gut um, are different from person to person. But if you simplify those bacteria, you're more likely to get overweight. Um, so we can, we can show that, um, that people who have a lot of ear infections, get a lot of antibiotics, are more likely to be obese than their twin who didn't get those ear infections and didn't get the antibiotics. And that people who've been heavily exposed to antibiotics have simpler microbiomes, less complicated, less diverse than people with, who don't get antibiotics. So antibiotics clearly change the microbiome in ways that can be permanent. And adding bacteria probably changed the microbiome in ways that can be permanent as well. There's one very famous case um, of a lawsuit, a woman who uh, had a stool transplant for C. diff um, after her stool transplant gained a tremendous amount of weight and was upset about it and, um, and sued over it. However, um, she lived, <laughs> you're gonna die of C. diff. Probably better if you gain some weight and have to struggle with what you eat rather than dying of C. diff. So it's, you know, these are the kinds of things that, that you discover as you're doing these experiments and you don't want to experiment on everybody. So we, we try to do the experiments in animals first and make sure we're getting, um, make sure we're getting beneficial effects. So one of the problems is animals are slightly different than humans in terms of their gut microbiomes. And although there's certain similarities between rats and humans, they're omnivorous, mice and humans, um, there are big differences. So studying the microbiome of, of, of animals isn't always adequate. <clears throat> when we try to create humanized guts, where we try to change the animal's gut to look more like a human gut. And there are organoids where you take little pieces of gut material and grow them in culture and make little mini guts. And you can study those as well. So we're trying to figure out which, bio, which, which um, probiotics and which prebiotics, prebiotics meaning certain foods that you eat that change your microbiome, um, which of those things are good for people and who they're good for. Right now, I think the way things are, um, if you have an illness, trying a, micro, a microbial change is probably useful. But if you don't have an illness, I tell people, to stick with the natural probiotics that come in their food, since we haven't done enough testing yet to be able to say, this probiotic is good for this thing in this person. Oh, okay. So probiotics might be good for somebody who has depression and another person may get depressed. You just don't know. And part of it is your genes and part of it is your neurochemistry and part of it is your gut bacteria and part of it is the way your gut functions. Oh, so okay. Oh, sorry to cut you off. There's a really cool experiment about this. So what causes IBS? What causes irritable bowel syndrome? And people have assumed that it's change in the microbiome, but in fact, 
It's much more complicated than that. If you take animals, babies, rats or baby mice and irritate their colon some with dilute vinegar, they will develop IBS. And they'll also develop, those animals will also develop depression. And if you cut the vagus nerve, they'll still develop IBS, but they won't develop depression. So that's a kind of depression that goes from your gut up to your brain. There's other kinds of depression that don't do that. Um, if you do that in animals with no bacteria, they still, it still happens. So we don't know whether IBS is caused by the bacterial infection changing your microbiome or by changing the gut itself by irritating it and giving it changes in the way the nerves function in your gut. We just don't know the answer to that yet. So you can see how complicated it is because you have to try and figure out, is it something the bacteria did or is it something that the bacteria caused that did it? Thank you so much for your answer. Um, um, from before, I wanted to ask um, how was that um, a probiotic or medicine that targets specific bacteria can end up influencing the rest, like um, unspecified bacteria, like and simplifying it, as you said. So um, yeah, I'll give you an example. So there are there are two bacteria that compete for the same niche, um, and in your gut there are goblet cells and they make mucus, and one of those bacteria eats the mucus. And so the mucus nourishes it. And the other bacteria that competes for the same niche has learned how to inhibit the, the, the uh, goblet cells from producing bacteria, so to starve out their competition. And the, that's a remarkable interaction. There's two bacteria that very specifically learn to compete in that way. So in, in a larger, writ large version of that, we don't know as we go down your gut, by the way, your bacteria change. So <clears throat> toward the beginning of your gut, you have very little bacteria in your small bowel. As you get toward the large bowel, you have more and more bacteria and bacteria change. Bacteria like to live in this side of your, some of the bacteria like to live in the other side of your gut where, where things are closer to the end and they eat different things and they live different lives. Some bacteria live in the lumen of the gut and some bacteria live on the walls of the gut. And again, these are different niches that are very, it's like, imagine yourself going scuba diving and you're scuba diving into the ocean from the shore outward. Every hundred feet, all of the flora will change. What kind of fish you see, what kind of things are growing, what kind of animals there are, what kind of plants there are. And the deeper you get, the more it changes. And so if you get down to the very deep ocean, the flora is completely different. The fauna is completely different than it is in the shallow ocean. See all these weird, creepy organisms that are living down at 2,000, 3,000 feet. And um, that your gut is, is much the same way changes as you go from the small bowel to the, to the end of your gut. So we don't know how we influence those. And when we give people uh, probiotics, we're taking a chance. Now, luckily, <clears throat> it's, there's, since there's plenty of bacteria in the environment, you're taking probiotics every way, every day that you don't know you're taking, right? There's, there's microbiota living on your food. Um, and as long as they're not certain types, you don't get sick because your bacteria are very tough at defending you against other bacteria. So if I took a swipe of the, um, the bacteria that live on your skin, um, 
Staph aureus that likes to live on skin, um, and I then put some other bacteria on your skin, your Staph aureus would just kick its butt. Your Staph aureus likes your skin and defends it against other bacteria moving into its territory. So these bacteria that belong to you and have made a deal with you to be your bacteria, they're pretty good at defending you against invading bacteria. So it might be that <clears throat> it is that most people can get away with eating yogurt, which has lots of bacteria in it, without getting sick. Um, are there people who get sick from yogurt? Well, we don't really know. We don't think so. But we don't know what yogurt is doing long term, except decreasing your risk of colon cancer if you get juvenile onset colon cancer. So we, we don't know how to manipulate these things yet, and we have a lot of work to do. Um, and some of the work's being done for us by people running out and buying probiotics and taking them so we can see what happens. But um, unless you're sick, I tell people not to do the experiment. Thank you so much for clarifying. Um, so for our next question, what determines whether bacteria will pass through our intestine or if they're incorporated into our microbiome? Yeah, partly. Um, so um, partly your genetics and your immune system do that. Partly your microbiota do that. And um, they are pretty well established by the time you're so if you think about people, people have been alive for probably about 100 to 150,000 years. They've been a species, human beings. So Homo sapiens diverged from other uh, hominids probably about 100,000 years ago, 150,000 years ago, some number in there. Um, we became human, we became Homo sapiens. That means there's been about 5,000 generations of Homo sapiens, maybe 10,000, depending on how you see it. Your gut bacteria had been through 10,000 generations of bacteria by the time you were 11. They're perfectly adapted to you. Your gut microbiome is very happy in your gut and defends it. And probably the major reason why bacteria can't establish a new colony in your gut is because the old colony in your gut is working with you to keep those bacteria out. Um, but, but if you develop an infection, Sometimes you can establish, like in C. diff, a bacteria that doesn't belong in your gut, gut and those bacteria um, will invade and colonize. And so we do see people who undergo, we've, we, in disease states, a transition of their microbiome. Um, and we know that the microbiome changes after we do various surgical things. And if you change what you eat, you can change your microbiome. So obviously, if you, change, if you take microbiota, you can probably change your microbiome significantly. We just don't know yet which ones change. And there are people who are working on that. So there are nice papers out there of people doing this specific experiment, that specific experiment. But we don't know how the big picture works yet. I see. Thank you. So um, our old colonies of bacteria might even like be constantly working to defend us against like even healthy bacteria or harmless bacteria because it doesn't want to be replaced. Yes, exactly. They, they don't want to be wasted. They don't, they're not, they're working for you. They're working for them. They're preserving mm -hmm. their niche. Um, it defends you as well, but they're not, they don't want anybody moving into the neighborhood, even bacteria that might be harmless to you. So another thing that's very interesting is, is this. How often do people need to eat? Well, probably about every three days. You can serve, if you, as long as you drink plenty of water, you can survive on food every three days. Um, However, because that's because every cell in your body is bathed by blood that has sugar in it and feeds them. 
So you don't need to have food in you. You have plenty of sugar reserved in that big flap of liver where there's starch stored and um, it can nourish you for a long time. However, your bacteria don't get blood. They need to eat every six hours or eight hours. How often do you eat? Every six or eight hours when they get hungry. So um, they have worked out a deal where they can get you to eat more frequently than you need to because it suits them. We don't know how they've done that, how they regulated that, but it seems like it's not just a coincidence that as, a, as an organism, you don't need to eat as often as they do. Anyway, that's, that's a cool little finding that people have made. That's actually, um, I'm really glad that you brought that up because I was going to answer three times a day, but I guess that's just because of bacteria and not actually me. So that is interesting. Well, we don't, we don't know. Um, we don't know if it's healthier for you to eat three times a day. We just know that if people don't eat three times a day, if they eat once every two days, um, they don't die. Mm -hmm. They may not thrive, but they don't die. So we know you can eat less, but you'll be uncomfortable if you're back here be saying, time for dinner. That makes sense. Thank you. Um, so next, uh, how does the enteric nervous system interact with the central nervous system? And would the effect of their interaction extend to um, engineered bacteria? Yeah, so absolutely, but we don't know how yet. So what we know is that the autonomic nervous system, the part of your nervous system that um, decides whether you're gonna fight or flight or whether you're gonna sit around and relax. So the sympathetic nervous system is the fight or flight side and the parasympathetic side of your nervous system is the relax and digest food side. Those two nervous systems antagonize each other. They have both an outflow where they slow your heart down and where they um, make your gut uh, uh, peristalsis and push food along. Um, but they also have an inflow. That is, they're sensing what you're eating. So there are little um, sensors that stick out into your gut that look just like microscopically, just like little tongues that are tasting the stuff in your gut and sending messages to your brain through your enteric nervous system about what's going on. And the enteric nervous system is, um, there's more neurons in your enteric nervous system than there are in your spine. So your brain has the most and your enteric nervous system is the second most neurons in your body. The huge nervous system in your enteric nervous system. And although it can't talk, it probably does integrate data and change how you feel. So um, your enteric nervous system probably has a profound effect. And um, as I told you, you can make people depressed by irritating their gut. And that goes up the vagus nerve. So it's part of the input from your gut to your brain and to the sympathetic and parasympathetic nervous system that the vagus nerve carries that information. And then your brain says, we need our gut to go faster. And that goes out through the vagus nerve. So the autonomic and, and, uh, and uh, the autonomic nervous system is headquartered mostly in your brain, but it has plenty of activity in your gut. Um, can you hear me? Yeah. Okay, sorry, my internet cut out for a second. But thank you so much for that answer. Um, so the engineered bacteria that were also integrated into the um, microbiome would also be able to communicate with, like be part of the enteric nervous system? Yeah, so the bacteria 
give people make things like you you wanted you talked about serotonin at the beginning so lots of bacteria make serotonin we don't know how much of those how much of that serotonin affects you versus how much is just broken down um, in your body um, but certain trans you've shown that gut bacteria may get into your brain and change your brain and um, so there's it can go by your blood it can go by your neurons in your gut, your enteric nervous system. And it can go by your immune system because we've shown that certain transmitters that your immune system makes, like interleukin-6, IL-6, can be depressogenic and they can make you depressed. So the bacteria that are living in your gut can affect your immune system, which can then affect your brain. And so it's not as simple as we'd like it to be that the bacteria are only getting to your behavior with one route. They're going every route you've got. And like I said earlier, the more we study it, the more we realize that the arrows go both ways. You affect your microbiome, your microbiome affects you. Your enteric nervous system affects you, you affect your enteric nervous system. By you, I mean your central nervous system. And so um, how much sensitivity you have to pain, for instance, is partly, a, is partly set by gut activity when you're young. And so people with uh, certain kinds of uh, manipulations of their guys, I shouldn't say people, but animals are more sensitive to pain or less sensitive to pain, depending on their gut microbiome. So your gut microbiome is doing a lot of things. And um, we're interested in how those go together because we don't know. Thank you so much. So our next question, um, we would actually like to ask for some advice. So we recognize that there are many different types of bacteria and different needs for every individual, like you mentioned before. Um, so what general guidelines or considerations should someone think about when deciding how much bacteria that a dosage should contain? And we chose our bacteria lactobacillus because it's naturally found in the digestive system. But yeah. we would like to hear your advice. Yeah, so um, remember the fact that it's lactobacillus doesn't mean it's, doesn't mean it's one thing. There's a lot of different subspecies of lactobacillus. Um, so, um, if, if I were trying to create a, uh, a um, something that I wanted to affect the microbiome, let's suppose I was gonna say, I wanna, I want a bacteria that causes, that, that um, makes people less depressed. What I would probably do is study the microbiomes of depressed people versus the microbiomes of people who aren't depressed and try to subtractively determine what bacteria tend to occur in people who are not depressed. And I would look after they got treated for their depression with, with antidepressants, whether those bacteria changed. And I would come down to a, a subgroup of bacteria that were candidates. I would make sure those bacteria were relatively safe in animal settings. I would look at the effects of those bacteria in, on other bacteria in organoids, in cultured gut, small little pieces of gut that you can grow in a dish. And then finally, I would get into the people where I would say, look, these are bacteria that are normally in guts and are associated with depression. And we want to see what happens when we give you these bacteria and you give them a small dose and a medium dose and a large dose. And you see if it changes their gut bacteria. And, if it, if it, and then you could start asking the question, what does it do to depress people? But it would, be, it would be a lot of steps before I would give it to somebody. On the other hand, if you're asking the legal question, what can you do? There are a bunch of bugs that are generally recognized as safe um, because they exist in most people's guts. And, um, and 
if they're not if you're not giving it as a drug, you're giving it as a food substance, um, then you then you can get away with giving it to people without the extensive testing that I think should be done for all these micro microbiome products that people are putting out there. I don't think these probiotics have had enough research that we're marketing to people. Um, I, for instance, I praise the people who made Pendulum because they actually did do a lot of research when they came up with their bugs. Um, but most of the time, the bugs are, uh, are bugs that people have presumed certain things about um, and, and tried to grow and tried to give people. And they don't have to do the kind of rigorous testing that people have to do when they come up with a pharmaceutical product, a drug. And uh, they probably have just as powerful of effect as certain drugs. So I'm not sure that I would want to take, I don't take probiotics because nobody's done a good enough experiment yet where they've shown me that people like me are likely to benefit from them or people like you. And different genetic people have different, uh, different genetics produce different microbiomes. No two people have the same microbiome. Even people who live together and eat the same things and are kind of living communally um, don't have the same microbiome. Mike, you're, they vary quite a bit. I'm going to have to stop in just a minute. So um, what other questions did you have? I'm going to need to wrap up and not be so long-winded. Oh, yeah. Thank you so much. Um, yeah, you've been answering very thoroughly. So it's been very valuable for us. Um, so our next question is, have you come across patients who have been um, addicted to psychobiotics? Um, or that, or people that have become mentally dependent on higher levels of neurotransmitters, and how should we ensure people take their suggested dosage? I don't know of anybody who has seen anybody who's addicted to a probiotic. <laughs> um, and um, by addicted, I mean does things that are harmful to themselves to get it. <laughs> So a lot of people say they're addicted to coffee, but they won't really they won't really rob a place to get coffee. So addicted is when your behavior behaviors that are out of character are driven by the need for the drug. But dependence is a different question. Um, and again, I don't know anybody who's shown dependence on a on a on a, a probiotic. I don't think there there is a probiotic that produces dependence that we know of. That is, when you stop it, that you get sick. Um, we, ha we just haven't seen that. Could happen, but I don't know if it happened. Um, having, having said that, um, there are people who have intense food cravings um, that nearly have an addictive quality to them. Um, women, when they're pregnant, often have these that they've never had before. So they'll crave something they've never craved before and really will be um, somebody needs to get me this right now. And we don't know how those, what those cravings are, but they may very well be um, but bugs that are telling you, I need to, you, you need to grow me up now uh, to protect your fetus and to protect your life and to protect our environment. We just don't know. We don't know what produces cravings like that. We know that, um, we know that, um, there was a couple of studies looking at dark chocolate. And if you're the genetically the right type of person and you have the right microbiome, that microbiome will push you to like dark chocolate. And it's just a couple of papers that, that looked at that. Um, it's not very good studies, but they're, they're initial studies that show that your bugs can affect what you eat 
and what you crave. And probably the food you eat can affect your bugs. So maybe these intense cravings and these people with, who describe food addictions where they, three o'clock in the morning, they have to get up and eat certain things. Those are coming from their microbiome rather than coming from their brain. Thank you so much. And um, for our final question, since we know you have to leave soon, um, in general, what symptoms would doctors look for to determine whether a person is experiencing a decline in health due to their gastrointestinal health? Um, well, so um, there are people who have pain in their gut. There are people who have dysmotility syndromes where they have diarrhea or constipation. There are people who... Um, there are people who have... Um, um, inability to absorb certain nutrients because their guts changed. Um, there are people who, um, who develop related problems that, that, um, that to organs related to the gut, like your pancreas and your liver. Um, and so there's a lot of different things that converge on uh, gut health. When we see patients in our clinic, they're usually people who've had lots of trouble for a very long so you might get, let's say, uh, traveler's diarrhea, go to the doctor and he can look to see if your gut is colonized with something that doesn't belong there. If you have a lot of white blood cells in your poop, other kinds of things. And he might say, I don't know what's infecting your gut, but I'm gonna give you an antibiotic burst just because I'm worried about you. And your gut might stabilize and go away and I never see you. And we don't really know what happened there. Maybe the antibiotic helped, maybe it didn't, maybe it had nothing to do with the antibiotic, maybe it was a virus. Um, so, but at the time, by the time people see us, they've lost a lot of weight. They can't get out of bed. They have abdominal pain when they eat. They throw up all the time. Their vomiting has started to cause their esophagus. Their, um, I had a patient very recently who had projectile vomiting where she would eat and then someone after she'd eat, Every once in a while, her she would vomit, and the vomit was spewing all the way across the room. It's just sudden, just happened, just like that. And so those are dysmotility symptoms where the nervous system of your gut and the muscles of your gut are doing something weird that they're not supposed to do. And our research shows that that's usually because of changes in the nerves of your gut, not changes in the mechanics of your gut. So it's not a mechanical problem. It's a change in the, in the control of your gut from nerves, nerve damage. Um, so what we try to do is we give those people things that, um, that try to reverse that or help it. And um, that's, a, that's another hour of conversation, but, um, but the patients come with symptoms and a normal person doesn't have anything wrong with them. If you discover something weird on their laboratory studies, Number one, why were you looking? But number two, you don't know what to do with it. Because a perfectly normal, healthy person can be colonized by a bacterium called uh, Helicobacter pylori, which lives in your stomach. Probably is responsible for ulcers. But, um, and it can live in your stomach acid. But it can also, and so therefore it can cause stomach problems. But there are lots of people who have Helicobacter who aren't sick in any way. And the question is, should we be curing those people of helicobacter? Or for them, is it a normal bug that's doing something good for them that we haven't figured out yet? And I suspect, by the way, it's B, that, that some people, helicobacter helps them. 
and other people, helicobacter in a particularly vulnerable person will cause problems. And that may be because um, in our clean society, we wiped out something that helicobacter balances. So the helicobacter gets out of control and causes ulcers. We just don't know. You know those are things that we're gonna... Things we're going to discover over the next 10, 15 years. Okay, well, thank you so much for your words of advice, Dr. Cheisman. And we found this session very helpful, and we'll be sure to use what we've learned today to make our project even better. Um, everyone who listens to the podcast, we know will find your work just as interesting and impressive as our human practices team did. So, Good. yeah, thank you so much again for your time. My pleasure. Glad to help out, and good luck on your project. Thank you. Talk to you later. Goodbye. Thanks for coming again.